This is Unfilter, episode 301 for April 10th, 2020. We begin today with an alarming new milestone right here in America. New York State now has more reported coronavirus cases than any country in the world. Let that sink in for just a second. And new pictures are a disturbing reminder of the human toll of that. This is a mass grave being dug for coronavirus victims at New York City's Potter's Field, where unclaimed bodies are laid to rest. Hello, friends, and welcome into episode 301 of your Corona Cracking Cast. My name is Chris, and we're here with some breaking news this week. Oh, 300 was fun. I hope you had a chance to listen and maybe even join us live. If not, go catch up. It was good to hear from our buddy Chase. Now, I wish I had a more substantial update for you at the top of the show about what the future grand plans of your unfiltered program are, because I feel like after... An episode like 300, I should come in here with visions of the future and basically a game plan, especially with all that's going on right now. But this week, this week didn't go as planned. Um, I went through something pretty hard that'll fundamentally reshape the projects I've worked on at Jupiter Broadcasting for 14 years. I know something has shifted. I, I haven't processed it yet. But I can tell this is one of those moments that will inform my outlook for the rest of my life. I guess that means if if I watch myself and I catch myself, I'll be able to push back on any kind of fundamental fact of life that this experience will inevitably lead me to conclude. If I can catch myself. But it has solidified some core beliefs about this show. And I want to share those with you about why it's important that this show remains sustainable and independent, that these basic tenets of this podcast will always be met. I'll tell you what. I've concluded so far. If this show is ever not an independent entity, i.e. no sponsors, no corporate entity except for my own, my direct control, then it will be incompatible with the fundamental realities of this podcast, and I will no longer do it. That is my commitment to you. I believe it is so important the show will never take sponsorships, and if it is not sustainable that way, then I won't do it. This experience has really left a solid mark on me in that way. And it also has reminded me how critically important it is to give solid considerations to all sides of an argument. Try the best you can, even when it's hard, to approach things intellectually. Now, I, I, I just haven't had a time to formalize a game plan with Chase. It's, 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 it's been a busy week. But I have, I'm fond of a format idea that I've been chewing on since 300. And then that's it's this essentially, an MVP essential podcast, a breaking news edition of Unfilter, if you will, when it's needed. Essentially, if something massive happens, or if enough somethings happen, that it is time for a check in from the show. You have a breaking news Unfilter, and then a separate show that's a wrap up show. It's all named Unfilter, but really they're two separate shows in a way. A separate show that's a wrap up discussion show with Chase and I. There could even be episodes where the minimum viable breaking news edition is hosted by Chase, depending on something perhaps that he's following. So it's not necessarily always like a solo Chris format or a solo Chase format, but traditionally the MVP solo breaking news would be one of us, probably most of the time me in a format like this right now. That's where I'm going with this right now. I haven't been able to push it further than just something I've been kicking around in my head. And I do want to take my time with, with so much that's going on. I, I, the time I do have for this show, I want to focus it on tracking the news. So let's start out with a COVID-19 update. 
We have a mixed bag this week of news. We begin today with an alarming new milestone right here in America. New York State now has more reported coronavirus cases than any country in the world. Let that sink in for just a second. A new in fact, let's let that sink in for a second. Let's actually not just move right in ahead. Let's... any country in the world. Wow. Now, these numbers are cumulative. So here's a bit more detail. So many people are dying in New York City due to coronavirus complications that the morgues are crowded to the point where new graves are being dug off Hart Island near the Bronx. Crews are burying unclaimed bodies that have been at the morgue for more than two weeks. Still, the state's new hospitalizations are the lowest they have been since the coronavirus crisis started. And ICU admissions are at their lowest level in more than three weeks. All of this data suggests that we are flattening the curve so far. And that's why one place that was supposed to be a field hospital is scaling back. Beds had been set up two days ago at this Manhattan cathedral. They've now been packed away. Meanwhile, logistical issues appear to be part of the reason why the 500-bed hospital ship Comfort has treated only 80 patients so far. I'm covered in Jesus' blood. Now, the so far death toll, of course, everything with this virus is a moving target, but the so far, so far death toll is substantially below that 100,000 mark we thought we'd be at by now, going by the models that, according to Dr. Bricks are based on the models that are based on the models. Um, they they have four models. Then they have a model of those four models, which is really just, I guess, an average, maybe a spreadsheet. And that told them we would get substantial deaths. But it seems so far we are shying short. Of and we're seeing them very strongly. And a lot of that has to do with the aggressive strategy in saving so many lives. We're saving so many lives compared to what it could have been. So nobody knows what the number is, but we had a number of 100,000 lives, as many as that is. It's impossible to even think of it. And that was the low end with a tremendous amount of work and a tremendous amount of, uh, you can call it many different things. Uh, our people had to be extremely strong and brave to be able to put up with what they've put up with. But... Uh, the minimum, if you did this, uh, social distancing and every other aspect, and I, I think I can say 90 percent, maybe even more than that, we're able to do it. Uh, the minimum number was 100,000 lives, and I think we'll be substantially under that number. As I record right now, there have been 501 confirmed, 501,000 confirmed cases. There have been 28,000 recoveries. That's a, that's a great number right there, isn't it? And there have been 18,000. Oh, this is, oh God, this is crazy. What are the chances of this, guys? 18,666 deaths. That's weird. <laughs> that's a weird time to be checking that. Way below like the 200,000. Hard to believe that if you had 60,000, uh, you can never be happy. But that's a lot fewer than we were originally told and thinking. So they said between 100 and 220,000 lives on the minimum side and then up to 2.2 million lives if we didn't do anything. But now, the thing that is is always cited is, well, it's the good work of the American people. And you'll hear often that the Washington curve is an example of how effective it is when you shelter in place. And I, I do think that is true. But I think they're overselling it because the roads are right back to normal. I was in traffic this morning. Everybody's out. The weather is nice in the Pacific Northwest and everybody's out. There's not there's not a lot of staying at home, but there does seem to be a fair amount of observing a certain amount of distance between each other. And, you know, two out of five people wearing masks. So perhaps that's also helping some of the mitigation. But it's, I mean, it's a good thing. I mean, I'm very happy that the numbers are much lower than they were projecting. That doesn't really explain why Donald Trump shifted to blaming the WHO this week. And I want to walk you through this because I think there's, like many things, some gray area here. There's some truth to it. 
but there's also some very early political positioning. Let's start with what's going on. The uh, WHO, that's the World Health Organization, receives vast amounts of money from the United States. And uh, we pay for a majority, the biggest portion of the... Um, in a statement released by the WHO, they claim that the U.S. provides less than 15% of its funding through 2018 and 2019. And if the argument is that China holds a lot of influence, that's probably true. It's probably China that primarily funds it. But just so you know, with the WHO, the WHO countered this and said, actually, the U.S. pays less than 15%. But I'll back it up so you can And uh, we pay for a majority, the biggest portion of their money. And they uh, actually criticized and disagreed with my travel ban at the time I did it. And they were wrong. They've been wrong about a lot of things. And they had a lot of information early, and they didn't want to do very – they seemed to be very China-centric. They called it wrong. They called it wrong. They really – they missed the call. They could have called it months earlier. They would have known. And uh, they should have known. And they probably did know. So we'll be looking into that very carefully. And we're going to put a hold on money spent to the WHO. We're going to put a very powerful hold on it. And Oh, a powerful hold. <laughs> Got to put a very powerful hold on it, of course. Of course. Now, the WHO isn't all innocent here. Actually, the argument that there's probably too much Chinese influence seems legitimate. I think we all remember that official who that was who was being was asked a question by a by a, a you know, what? actually I have the clips. Let me check. I believe it was a journalist from Taiwan asking him a question about Test. Yep, here it is. So, you, okay, yeah, you guys remember this, where this official dodged these questions about t- Taiwan's WHO membership, um, and then he pretended like he couldn't hear the um, journalist. Here it is. I, I I found the clip. I got it. In the A archive. senior WHO official has raised hackles in Taiwan by appearing to dodge questions about Taiwan's exclusion from the World Health Body. During an interview via video chat with a Hong Kong media outlet, Bruce Isleward, a Canadian epidemiologist, remained silent for about 10 seconds when asked if the WHO should reconsider Taiwan's membership. After their video hookup appeared to be disconnected, the interviewer called him back. This time, Isleward declared that if he had contracted the coronavirus, he would want to be treated in China. Now, this is better visually. That's why I never actually played this in the uh, in the show and I had to go back to the archive. Because the thing is, is when you see this, it's so clear that the guy didn't have a, disc- a connection issue and that he hung up the call because... If you're familiar with like MPEG style compression, where you can see the compression artifacts in a video feed and they are they're moving, you can see the compression in the video feed. And if if it's if it's a still, if it's frozen, that noise suspends, it freezes. That doesn't happen. The noise keeps active in this call. He just stays still like the call's disconnected. So picture this when you hear the call go silent. He's just sitting there pretending like he didn't hear her because he panics and doesn't know what to say. WHO considered Taiwan's membership. Now he's panicking. He actually moves and blinks too. I forgot that. <laughs> he moves. <laughs> Hello? We, with the, with the, Sorry, I can't hear you. I couldn't hear your question. Okay, yeah, let me, let, let me, let me repeat the question. No, so. that's okay. Let, let's move to another one then. I like how he couldn't hear the question, but he wants to move to another one. Now, this is pretty devastating because this is a WHO official who is evasive on answering questions about Taiwan, which is an extremely sensitive topic for China. Couldn't hear your question. Okay, yeah, let me let, let me let me repeat the question. No, so. that's okay. Let, let's move to another one then. <laughs> that's so smooth, dude. Nobody's gonna catch that. Yeah, you're totally your pulling okay, yeah, off. Okay, let me let, let me let me repeat the question. No, so. that's okay. Let, let's move to another one then. When Islewood was asked about Taiwan, he stalled for close to ten seconds and avoided a reporter's question. But the reporter persisted. I'm actually curious on talking about Taiwan as well on Taiwan's case. And he hung up on her. So she sits there like, what? We decided to give back. Dr. Alward another call to follow up. 
And I just want to see if you can comment a bit on how Taiwan has done so far in terms of containing the virus. Well, we've, we've already talked about China. Iowood is an assistant director general at the WHO and is a Canadian-trained epidemiologist. Ever since the pandemic broke out, he has constantly sung China's praises. I left um, inspired and with a deep admiration for, uh, you know, the common Chinese people uh, that, that I worked with. If I had COVID-19, I want to be treated in, in China. Lin Shijia, the CEO of the Foundation of Medical Professionals Alliance, lamented that the WHO has been deeply poisoned by Chinese influence. He said he believed that once the pandemic was over, each nation would seriously consider how to reform these kinds of international organisations that have been heavily infiltrated by China. I mean, there could be something to that. I don't know how much that's getting coverage in the US, but it's getting coverage outside the US. Interesting, I pulled up a second Corona uh, COVID-19 global dashboard. I have a couple of these. You probably do too. And this one's saying uh, currently there's 18,586 deaths in the U.S. There were 5,820 deaths just in New York City so far. Now, these are cumulative numbers, right? Um, 723 in New York City itself, 5,820 in New York overall. Interesting, Seattle's just not even on the map. This is actually one of the things I was looking for is... uh, I guess King Washington might be uh, might be King County, Washington, which would be where Seattle's at. Two hundred fifty eight deaths, two hundred fifty fifth, two hundred twenty five deaths, I should say, in Los Angeles right now. Pretty serious stuff, you know. I mean, we we can talk about what the symptoms are like, but those numbers are real numbers. Pretty serious stuff. It's very sad to say to see that. Um, the long term economic impacts will be very serious too. But right now, this is the serious number. Now, I have another clip of the WHO that is just creepy. I'm not sitting here shaming the WHO. WHO, The WHO. It seems like right now, now's not the time to go knocking down organizations like the WHO. You know, it's a, maybe that's a quote-unquote post-action report like Nancy Pelosi likes to say. But there was another quote that came out of the WHO that I just found to be disturbing. In most parts of the world, <clears throat> due to lockdown, most of the transmission that's actually happening in many countries now is happening in the household. This is a WHO official in one of their press conferences. This is an official press conference. And he's saying, we've got to talk about the household. In fact, maybe we should go into those households. Listen At carefully. family level. In some senses, transmission has been taken off the streets and pushed back into family units. Now we need to go and look in families to find those people who may be sick and remove them and isolate them in a, in a safe and dignified manner. How do you go into somebody's home and remove them from their family and isolate them in a safe and dignified manner? And what's the risk if they're all isolating in the home? I don't understand that. I mean, that's just that's weird. But I think ultimately it, destroying something like WHO or unfunding it, defunding it, that's that's taking a club to something that probably just needs a tune-up. Like, uh, maybe, maybe we just look at what caused the WHO to fail and fix those things? I would imagine you, you don't want to step into this controversy that the president apparently has created where he's blasted the WHO. Does he have a point for blaming them, that, for what he says for spreading the virus? Does he have a point? This is Dr. Bricks, as I like to call it, she's got an X. I mean, how cool is that to have an X in the, at the end of your name? And she's responding to um, Gail's question and tried to actually kind of put her maybe on a bit of an off footing with the president's stance on this. This is obviously tricky territory for the doctor, but I think her answer actually holds up. In reality, I think we have to look at the situation with the, with the WHO from a data perspective. Was their data valid? Did they have bad data? Was it manipulated data? Where did the data go wrong? You know, the WHO can only react to the data it's given. And when you go back and look at the timeline, it wasn't until I think almost the middle of January that it was that China reported that there was human to human transmission. We have to really investigate reporting and how the reports were received there. I think it did delay the ability to declare this a global pandemic and emergency. We can do all of that when we get through this as a global community to really understand how to do this better the next time. Yeah, I think that's it right there. Is it's, I mean, if you're going to do it, don't do it right now. So why are they doing it right now? 
what is the political angle that's motivating the Trump administration and Trump himself to come out? Well, funny enough, I think around the same day that the Trump positioning came out on the WHO, or perhaps the day after or day before, I can't, it's all blurring together right now, a very interesting report came out that, frankly, would put the Trump administration square in the target of the public if the extent of this is now true. Now to that breaking news and exclusive ABC News investigation out this morning reports that the National Center for Medical Intelligence warned the military and the White House late last year about the spread of coronavirus in China. Our senior White House correspondent Cecilia Vega joins us now with the details. Good morning, Cecilia. Hey, Michael, good morning to you. So it was just yesterday that President Trump said no one had even heard of the virus two months ago. But we are now learning that as far back as late November, American military medical investigators overseas sounded the alarm to officials right here at home about a contagion that was sweeping through Wuhan. Those concerns that the virus could be devastating were detailed in a report, and multiple sources have described that report to our team. Now, it's not just that. There were repeated briefings for policymakers across the federal government through December. And by early January, the warnings made it into the president's daily briefing. But it wasn't until late January that President Trump made his first public comments about this virus, saying that he wasn't at all worried about it and that he had it totally under control. Of course, this is now raising serious questions about whether the administration could have ramped up the response efforts before it actually did. Michael, so far, no comment from the Pentagon or officials at the White House. So it's very handy to have the WHO to point at. Did they make a mistake? Were they manipulated by China or China's data? Possibly. Sounds like it's possibly to very likely. But there's also this political timing. And you know what's weird about this is doesn't it have echoes of 9-11? Osama bin Laden determined to strike within the U.S. And then the whole Dick Clark report about how they were going to fly planes into the World Trade Centers and they advised the Bush administration like in February that that was going to happen. And then in September, they actually flew the planes or not. Maybe I don't know if it was Osama bin Laden determined or Al-Qaeda. Obviously, it was a long time ago and the details fade. But the administration is warned by our very expensive, very extensive intelligence apparatus, which it's never clear what the hell we pay for, because clearly the administration only picks and chooses the intelligence data, regardless of which administration it is. They clearly pick and choose the intelligence data they want to respond to. But yet we pay for it, <laughs> top dollar, and, and then they don't do anything. Now, what could they have done? Well, they could have shut down travel sooner. They could have started preparing to get working on tests sooner. They could have gotten people over to China faster. We could have gotten our hands on this earlier, possibly. We don't know what the extent of that report was. We don't know how detailed it was. We don't know if it was just based on models, which apparently are not always super reliable. So the thing is, is we can't fully judge the situation yet, but it sure as hell raises a red flag in my book. And I think it explains why the Trump administration is so quickly pointing the, w the finger at the WHO. Now, there is some good news coming out of China. In fact, some good news in general. Let's play some of them. MSNBC, Janice Mackey-Frayer in Beijing. Uh, Wuhan, the place where this all began, has ended its lockdown. What gave the Chinese government the confidence to end that? Well, increasingly, the statistics have been suggesting that the situation is under control here. That doesn't mean that the epidemic is completely over, but it has reached a point where the authorities believe they're able to ease some of the restrictions that have been in place in Wuhan's case for 76 days. Uh, the city has been sealed off. People haven't been Yikes. allowed to travel 76 in and out. Days. And for most of this 11-week period, they haven't been able to leave their homes without special permission, special passes, and a time limit even to go and get groceries. Think about it, Willie. It, 76 days is how long the lockdown lasted in Wuhan. New York City is on day 20 of its stay-at-home order, and it's been 26 days since the U.S. declared a national state of emergency. Oh, that feels that feels like it's going to be a long time if we could take if it if it comes to that. Oh boy, if 86 days is going to oof, going to feel like a year. Um, and it's not, it's not even three months, <laughs> but it's going to feel like a year. There's also some good news uh, for your good buddy, Boris Johnson. Now, we're getting some information, more information about the prime minister here. Um, let's talk to our political correspondent, Joe Pike, who is at Westminster. So some new information, I understand, about uh, the prime minister and his condition. 
That's right, Mark. Uh, Downing Street have released a statement in the last few minutes saying Boris Johnson is walking or doing short walks at least. This is the statement. The Prime Minister has been able to do short walks between periods of rest as part of the care he is receiving to aid his recovery. He has spoken to his doctors and thanks the whole clinical team for the incredible care he has received. His that seems like good news, right? He didn't have to go on the ventilator. Which uh, seems like that's a good thing. You want to shift gears to the economy with me? You know, we've talked about how rough it is out there for that poor oil industry right now. But it hasn't stopped all of the industry construction. Don't worry. Guys, big relief. The Keystone XL pipeline continues right along. Despite the worldwide pandemic, a Canadian company is pushing forward with a major oil pipeline project. TC Energy has started work on the controversial Keystone XL pipeline, and current construction has local communities worried not only because of the environmental ramifications, but also because of coronavirus. RT's Alex Mihailovich has the story. Much of the world is at a standstill. But when it comes to the oil industry, some believe the show must go on. Canada's TC Energy started new construction on the Keystone XL pipeline this week. Work is being done at the Canada-U.S. border in northern Montana. Her- oh, man. Of course. That's not. That's going to be fine. Nobody's going to get upset about that, right? Maybe we'll be too distracted by the crushing unemployment numbers. should brace for another astronomical initial jobless claims number tomorrow when the Labor Department releases data for the past week. The consensus is 5 million people applying for benefits. And remember, that's on top of the 6.6 million last week and the more than 3 million the week before. And all of this is stressing state unemployment funds to the max, some more than others. Scott Cohn joins us live with that story. Hi, Scott. Now, this is... Fairly interesting on how some of the mechanics of this work. So I'll play a bit of this. Hi, Rahel. Basically, the way this works is every state keeps its unemployment insurance trust fund in an account with the Treasury Department. And it's up to the states to keep that account funded uh, such that it can handle a recession. Well, even going into this, a number of states were on the brink of insolvency. We know this because just in February, just before everything blew up, the Labor Department came out with its latest report on the status of these funds, and it is not pretty. Take a look. 22 states, nearly half, fell below the federal standard for solvency, which essentially is the ability to pay benefits in a typical recessionary year. Each of the states in yellow there has less than a year's worth of benefits in reserve. And in a handful of states, it's even worse. Each of the states in red has less than six months. And these include some of the biggest states, six months or so in Connecticut, five in Illinois, Massachusetts, and Ohio, four months in New York and Texas, and about 10 weeks here in California. We may need some faith healers. The states are just not ready for this level. So they're going to ask the feds to help fund all of that. We'll get to that because that may or may not be happening. First, I want to keep the good news rolling for you. There is at least one aspect of the economy that's doing quite well. And I bet if you think about it, you could probably guess it. If you tried to order groceries for delivery, you know it is not smooth. Facing a crush of demand, Instacart's announcing some new tools to battle the backlog. Frank Holland has the latest. Frank. Hey there, John. You know, Instacart says new orders spiked by 300% last week, just adding to the growing frustration for shoppers as it's become increasingly difficult to get delivery times from leading services, Instacart. 300% growth. I tried it for the first time. I'd never used it. I I have used my local grocery store's built-in delivery service that they just manage themselves directly. That's always been great, but they were too slammed, and I wanted multiple stores, and I wanted stores that don't traditionally offer it because, you know, I'm trying to stay at home as much as I can. And I also hate grocery shopping, let's be honest. That's definitely part of it. And I tried out Instacart and it, it worked pretty well. I got a faster delivery and um, I kind of think I might just stick with it. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what the prices work out to be. But I am a lazy bastard when it comes to that kind of stuff. And I don't know. I've recently thought maybe it'd be better if I went grocery shopping with headphones, you know, like earpods airpods kind of style and listen to a podcast that might make it more doable but with the price of oil i feel like i should be out on some road trip right now and trump might ruin all of that so we hinted at in a recent episode that he had a backup plan if the oil companies didn't come to an agreement in their little feud between 
Saudi Arabia and Russia. Oh, yeah, he has a plan, all right. The plan is to just tariff the crap out of oil here in the States so that essentially prices go back up to where they were. Thanks, tariffs. We heard from the president about this idea on tariffs on foreign oil, particularly Saudi oil. You know, a lot of the oil executives who went to the White House on Friday went there with the goal of talking the president out of putting tariffs on foreign oil. A number of them were worried he was just about to do it on Thursday and Friday. Uh, he, he had that meeting. That message seems to have resonated with the president because during that briefing yesterday and over the weekend, we heard him still talking about tariffs, but only in a conditional sense. Here's what he said. If the oil price uh, stays the way it is because of people that really want to see it go up, when I say get, we want to save a great industry, that we built a great industry in this country. Uh, if they don't get along, I would do that. Yeah, I would do tariffs, very substantial tariffs, because we're independent now. We have our own oil. And if I did the tariffs, we, we essentially would be saying we don't want foreign oil. Could you imagine? I, I don't, obviously, this is a very big situation, and certain, certain things need to be changed if we're going to save an industry. I don't know. Maybe we could just use the tariff revenue to invest in Tesla. <laughs> I know that's crazy. I know. I know. I know it's crazy. It doesn't really matter if we don't have an economy anyways. Like there's not going to be demand. And that's that's part of it. It's this feud in prices and there's also just significant significant drop in demand all around the world. That's what happens when the world shelters in place. So how do you fix it? How do you restart the economy? Hasn't that been like the question you've heard on the news a thousand times? How do we start this thing back up? Everybody's asking that, which is funny, right? Because just today I've been getting a lot of crap on Twitter about downplaying the coronavirus. You see, this is what happens is I come on the show and I say, let's not panic. Let's take a centered view at everything. Let's try to be intellectual, listen to all sides of the conversation. And I didn't come on the show and I didn't say, freak out, there's going to be 240 deaths. I said, prepare yourself. There's going to be big numbers in the media. We should take that and just know that whatever happens, we're in this ride, but we don't know what the end result's going to be. I think that's a fair analysis. Now, now that number is looking like it's going to be more like 60,000. So was I wrong for not freaking out? Apparently. Apparently it's not good enough. See, apparently the unfiltered show is so toxic that people have to unsubscribe from all JB shows, even though this has nothing to do with Jupiter Broadcasting. But because I am so vile for not panicking about the coronavirus, they are unsubbing from all JB shows. It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. It's... It's the kind of exact reactionary stuff I'm talking about that is bad. It stifles conversation. It's anti-intellectual. It collapses people down to a single variable, and then they dismiss them once they're at that single variable. The, the very problem we have with discourse in this country is that kind of attitude. Should we be concerned? Should we be precautious? Should we be doing everything we can as responsible citizens to minimize the spread, the reach, the impact of the coronavirus? Yes. Absolutely. I think that's been a pretty consistent message. It's just my message also is, don't freak out. If this studio was on fire right now, and every exit except for jumping through glass was my, was my only option, I would still say, don't freak out. If I was in the middle of a car accident, my first thought would be, don't freak out. Stay calm. Handle it. In fact, I have been in some very serious situations where I can tell you it's life and death. And my first thoughts were, stay calm, stay focused, get the work done, do it right. That's my philosophy. And that's the philosophy in which I bring into the show, too. And if I get something wrong, I try to update it. Like, that's why I checked a separate source for that dashboard for the deaths early. Because I'm like, that number doesn't seem like what I've heard recently. So I double checked it. I have multiple sources. And I also link to a lot of sources in the show notes. I want to remind you, you can always find those at the Unfilter site. Unfilter.show slash 301 for this one. A lot of times when you hear me toss something out there, a little bit of analysis here and there, it's because I was informed by something I read and then I link it in the show notes. It has been suggested in our Discord, and I think it's something I will probably start trying to do, is I will try to name some of those sources as I toss things out. But I think for that, I'll have to have a system where I just have a notepad with me where I write down, you know, source for this and then I bring it in here with me like I'll, I'll have to develop a system for that because 
sometimes you see those show notes, there's like 50 links in there. It's a lot. So it's, it's a task. But it's something I think is important. So it's something I'm going to invest some time in. And even if I don't get a system as far as that, I will try to cite more sources more often. You'll often hear me do that too. But it's something I'm going to try to make more of a habit. The Discord has been really great for getting feedback around 300 and other ideas as we form all of this. So I want to thank everybody who took time to join the community on filter.show slash Discord. Also, um, just some really nice words of support in there after the horrible week I had at the day job. And it was really nice to see that. So I just appreciate everybody. If you'd like to join us, unfiltered.show slash Discord. So how do we restart this thing? That is the big conversation, which feels like people aren't allowed to talk about because I say don't freak out, and I'm literally getting shamed by multiple people on Twitter today. But everybody else is allowed to ask, when are we going to restart this thing? Which I think is a perfectly valid question because how you execute that is going to make a huge impact. It's a really big decision, and it's a intricate thing to play. The latest CBS News poll shows Americans expect long-lasting economic pain. Nearly two-thirds of people we spoke to believe some businesses will bounce back fast, but others will not. We also found more Americans disapprove of President Trump's handling of the crisis as it wears on. Ben Tracy is at the White House. Ben, the president is still pushing for businesses to reopen as soon as possible? Good morning. He is. And the president says he would prefer to open up the country all at once with what he calls a big bang. CBS News has now learned that the president is considering forming an economic task force. This would focus on how you get the economy back up and running once the worst of this pandemic is over. This might be a successful recipe he stumbled upon here because it helps him defer blame. If something goes horribly wrong, imagine this Corona stuff had gone 300,000, 600,000, 4 million, you know, really bad, dramatic stuff. Like we'd really blown it. He probably would have put that all on Pence, right? I mean, <laughs> that's what a vice president's for. So who will lead this task force up and will they be a fall guy? And it's not a Trump only formula, obviously. Trump's not the first guy to come up with a task force. It's probably what his advisors told him to do. But in a sense, it might be a good idea for a president like Trump who doesn't have a lot of experience in this space. So you bring in a bunch of people who do and you average out the opinion and you make a decision. Maybe. How do you decide on something like this? I'd like to know your thoughts legitimately. But for right now, both parties agree that more financial relief is needed. They just can't agree on how much. The Republican-controlled Senate tried to pass an additional $250 billion in small business loans on Thursday. But Democrats want double that amount. They want to include money for food stamp programs, hospitals, and state and local governments. Now, as for the widespread nationwide coronavirus testing that you were talking We'll stop here. I actually want to go back to what he said. They just about can't agree on how much. The Republican-controlled Senate tried to pass an additional $250 billion in small business loans on Thursday, but Democrats want double that amount. They want to include money for food stamp programs, hospitals, and state and local governments. Let's zoom in on that for a second, because this is interesting. Nancy Pelosi says, we got ourselves a perfect bidding position. We can get whatever we want, but that seems like that exact kind of attitude is going to slow this thing down. At the same time, what the Republicans are offering seems completely inadequate for the scope of the situation. Yeah, good morning, Carl. It's no deal in the United States Senate. Mitch McConnell pushing to add an additional $250 billion to that Paycheck Protection Program for small businesses. He's concerned that there's so much demand for that program, it could be running out of funds sooner rather than later. But Democrats blocking that move this morning. They need unanimous consent on the Senate floor in order to get this done because there are so few senators around. Democrats stepping in saying, no, no, no. What we want is a much bigger program, an additional $250 billion for states, localities, hospitals, uh, all sorts of other entities. The Democrats envision a much bigger program. They don't want to just pass what's called a clean bill, just focused solely on this small business issue. So they've stepped up to block that. That means no deal, no replenishment of that fund today. We'll see where this goes. Carl, my sense is this is enormously politically popular. There's going to be some jousting over it. But in one form or another, whether it's in a small bill or as part of a larger bill, uh, this plussing up of that small business fund is going to get done at some point here from Congress. Doesn't it seem funny that $250 billion seems like a small amount now? <laughs> it's just... It really is something, eh? Isn't it? But that's 
the reality of the situation if you're going to have to prop up the entire economy. Let's uh, transition to the election. No, 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 hey. Ed, uh, we are now learning that Bernie Sanders has suspended his campaign for the presidency. This is Justin. He just held an all staff conference call on that call. He announced that he is suspending his campaign for the presidency. And we're also getting word that at about 1145 a.m. Eastern time this morning, about 20 minutes from now, he is going to address supporters during a live stream. Here's a bit of that. Uh, I grabbed this from the MSNBC feed. In this most desperate hour, I cannot in good conscience continue to mount a campaign that cannot win and which would interfere with the important work required of all of us in this difficult hour. That was the live web announcement this morning. With that, the Sanders campaign is over. That means... As of this morning, a Wednesday in April during a pandemic, former Vice President Joe Biden became the apparent nominee of the Democratic Party. I'll tell you, this this news hit me kind of hard because I don't really have a lot of faith in Biden's chances. And um, it it seems that despite if you like Trump or not, an irritant has made its way into the body of Washington, D.C. politics and until that irritant has been expelled from the body, it will be total chaos. We have entered such a polarized political time that has been building for generations, each parent set of parents radicalizing the next set a little bit, a little bit more, and a little bit more to the point now where I get shamed for not panicking enough. And, every, you know, you, I, and it's not just me. Everybody has all kinds of crap that they see happen on social media. It's ridiculous where we're at now. It's ridiculous. And so it seems that this, this Matt, that Trump is an echo of this chaos chamber. And I don't think he is going to be able to fix it. It's going to take a completely different candidate. I don't know from what side or from what party to come in with a different approach. That may be the single thing that Biden truly offers is just ratcheting down the media hate and the social media, the social media hate and, and just the divisive language and just ratcheting all that down. But I don't think Biden has a good shot at it. Uh, and I don't think on the other end, people are going to elect to decide to ratchet it down on their own and deal with Trump at that level. I just don't think it's very likely as long as Trump is in office. And it's not just a left thing. It's not just a media thing. It's a right thing as well. Here is a disgusting clip of Ben Shapiro and Glenn Beck dancing on the grave of Bernie Sanders. Campaign. Joining us on the line is Glenn Beck, CEO of The Blaze, host of Glenn Radio, Glenn TV, Glenn Beck podcast. Basically, anything named after Glenn Beck is probably hosted by Glenn Beck is a pretty good bet. He also has a brand new book out. It is called Arguing with Socialists. Well, congratulations, Glenn. You won the argument. Bernie dropped out today. Thank so you. Good timing on that. What do you make of I know. the geriatric <laughs> communist leaving the race? Geriatric communists leaving the race i am uh, i'm sending him a copy of the book he's got plenty of time to read it now <laughs> you can guess how the rest of their analysis goes it's unfortunate it's unfortunate i guess they get to have their moment um but i think trump is going to probably have his way with biden in the debates and the stamina of donald trump has been impressive over these last two weeks or more now, that he's been doing these daily two-hour press briefings. It's become a huge, huge inconvenience to watch these for this show because they're long and they just go nonstop. I have a hard time standing for that long. And the man's not only standing, but he's answering questions. His whole team, too, by the way. Incredible stamina, really. And I don't know if I see that in Joe Biden. He doesn't seem to be able to make it through a 15-minute interview or a five- or ten-minute interview, to be honest with you. I know I'm, I know I'm going to get shamed for talking about that, too, but this is my opinion watching this. I had family members who suffered from issues as they aged as well. And this strikes a, a note close to home for me. And I, I don't I, I don't know how to answer people who feel like it's intellectually impossible to discuss these things. I think it's absolutely critical. And I feel like they're being dishonest because it's an argument that they don't have a good answer for. And none of us are doctors, so we can't necessarily gauge it with any certainty. So they just hand wave it away. 
But it's going to impact the voters. The voters will think about these things when they go into or when they mail in their ballot. Speaking of speaking of the ballot, I, I think Sanders might still have a bit of a long play here. I He might be out of the race, but I don't know if his influence is necessary. Uh, to both of you, I heard him say that he is staying on the ballot. He wants to assemble delegates so that he will have leverage over the party platform at the convention, which we know has been moved for, uh, moved out of July into August, at least according to current plans, that he believes that he has, as we say, won the ideological struggle and shack that that his campaign has been more than a campaign. It's been a movement. And he's saying that Joe Biden is a decent man. He congratulates him. Uh, that is something short of an actual endorsement, but it is, for all intents and purposes, right. he is joining with, with Joe Biden. Sort of like he kind of endorsed Hillary last time. Um, bringing his delegates to the convention, though, still gives him some some negotiation leverage there. So he may be out, but I don't know if his entire plan is. I would imagine there was conversations. There's been reporting to the effect that he had conversations with both Biden and Obama. And perhaps there was some negotiating between different camps. And Bernie felt like he was satisfied enough. And he'll keep those delegates as leverage, as a bargaining chip. Why, 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 you're getting nervous, man. Calm down. It's okay. One more good news story. It's so... So nice to just have a little bit of good news to share with you guys on this show. There's definitely, it's a mixed bag still. It's going to be for a while. No way around that. Probably forever. Let's be honest. But as you guys know, uh, I'm recording this here podcast from the zombie apocalypse on wheels bunker, Lady Jupes. I have the recording equipment and the hosting servers that help me on the back end, all powered by solar. So this is actually a green podcast. <laughs> How about that? And, uh, I have made deep connections in the RV community over the years. I I will be honest with you guys, and I talk about this. I actually started a work life and RV podcast, worklifeandrv.com. And um, when I first moved into an RV, I wasn't actually moving in. I thought I was just taking a road trip. And then on this road trip, on the way back, which was an epic trip, I thought to myself, where the hell am I going to store this thing? It's really going by the seat of my pants back then. And I thought to myself, well, what if, what if I stored it? at a campground and I just stayed in it. Yeah. And then from there I decided to live in it and then decided to upgrade into Lady Jupes. And I had a real life lesson that the people that live in RVs are all types. You know, I, I think growing up, I will use the term white trash. I thought people that lived in trailers and RVs were white trash and I judged them. I don't know where that came from, but it was obviously something. It was one of those Facts of life that you just assume is true and you don't really catch yourself reevaluating. Well, this was a great chance for me to do that. And I, I have discovered that some of the neatest, greatest, and eclectic people that I've ever met live in these RVs and they're mobile, they're nomadic, a digital nomad like me. Uh, and the community has come together in a way that is so awesome in this Corona stuff that really only the RV community could. And, and there's others that are getting in on this, that are making it, that are going to be enabling. So I'll play this clip, and we'll talk a little bit about this. I just think this is a super neat thing to see. We miss you. Emily Phillips, a mother of three, was the first to post a plea for help. When you posted this online, did you think anybody was going to respond? No, I, I just thought maybe somebody might have a an RV or, or camper. So we just were throwing things out there and I got an immediate response. Emily's husband, Jason Phillips, is an ER doctor in North Texas. As I had a high chance of getting exposed and I think my wife came up with the best solution. I really didn't want to stay in a hotel full time and be separated from them. Emily turned her experience into a movement. There are now more than 22,000 people in the RVs for MDs group. So far, at least 345 matches have been made with hundreds pending. So this is a really neat thing. So they have a group, a Facebook group, RVs for MDs. And then there's other outfits like Outdoorsy, which uh, is emailing customers, asking them if they'd like to put their RV on, on listing. And uh, RVShare.com that's looking at doing the same thing. They're essentially Airbnb for RVs, if you will. And why I think this is so incredible, and it, it almost chokes me up as a father, is... These RVs can be brought to these doctors' homes and put in their yard so they can still see their family and kids, but they can also isolate and keep their family safe and healthy so they can both go in and help people 
but they can also go home and see their family, eat meals, share moments. It's such an incredible opportunity for the RV community to help out. Emily runs the group with more than 100 volunteers, including Holly Haggard, the first person to offer up her RV to the Phillips family. It doesn't matter who you vote for. It doesn't matter what your religious beliefs are. None of that matters. Everybody has just come together. There are successful matches from Virginia, California, and North Carolina. I read about the first emergency physician that has passed, and my stomach sank, and I'm like, we need this now. Dina Cretion turned to the group to find an RV for her husband, John, an ER physician. There you can see the camper behind us. Tanya Sheets drove three hours to deliver her camper. We knew that he was on the front line taking care of these patients, putting himself at risk. We had to jump in to do something. John expects to quarantine soon. And how long could this last? We don't know until we know that he is safe and okay for us to go back to normal. Hey, look at this. Wow. The road to normalcy may be longer than most would like, but the journey just got a little bit smoother. Whether it's kindness that connects us or love that connects us. All right, Mama. Love you. I miss you. We will come out of this entire situation much better. For CBS This Morning, Mireya Villarreal, North Texas. Isn't that great? There will be some silver linings. The community that's building around this show, you know, it's weird to say now, borderline inappropriate, but the truth is the community that's building around this show right now will last beyond this pandemic. It'll be lasting for, well, hopefully a very, very long time. Who can say? But people tell me. But also for us, on a personal note, it's been a great opportunity for us to spend time with our children. Spring break never really feels long enough. And as a dad who doesn't get to spend every day with his kids, having some extra time and having the family support system around that to actually make it possible so we're not struggling with it, has been really nice. So that's the silver lining I'm taking from this. The show, the community, and the extra time with family. I'd love to hear your thoughts on anything we we covered. Remember, we have that Discord, unfiltered.show slash Discord. Channels in there for different things. If you have soundboard clips, I'm still soliciting those. Please do send them in. We have a dedicated soundboard channel where you can suggest them to me. If you got a nice short clip, put it in there. Or if you just know the time range of a clip, Drop the link in there and give me the time range. And I, I'll go fish. I'll go fish for a good clip. Anyways, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode. We'll let you know about the plan soon. Hope to have another episode with my buddy Chase just around the corner. Unfiltered.show slash subscribe is where you get it all. So if you want to catch future episodes, even the breaking news ones, one feed. Unfiltered.show slash subscribe. Thanks so much for joining me. And we'll see you right back here real soon. Oh! Thank you very much. Snitches get rewards. We want to thank you for turning folks in and making sure we are all safe.